Well, hello, everyone, um, and welcome to Insight with Political Tours and Beyond the Headlines. Last week's decisions by the US Supreme Court were not unexpected, but they're momentous. Nevertheless, Trump's three nominations to the court are having a major impact, setting women's rights back by more than 50 years. We're here to ask what will be the impact on the polls. So have The Economist's Washington, D.C. Correspondent, correspondent with us, Idris Kahloun, to look ahead at the U.S. midterms. Hello and welcome, Idris. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much. Great to have you with us. You're in San Francisco, where it's unbelievably early in the morning, um, six o'clock. So very grateful for you to be um, getting up this early. And I think we'll have a few Australians online, too, where it's late in the evening. First of all, can you just give us a, a very quick recap? Um, the court's decision on abortion wasn't unexpected, but we, you, you expect to see repercussions across various states um, immediately. What's going to happen over the next few months? Well, what you're going to see because of the court's decision is a bifurcation of the abortion regime within states. So um, to recap, Roe versus Wade said that there was embedded within the Constitution a fundamental right to abortion. Um, and that meant that uh, in every state, uh, a woman had to have the right, regardless of the majority opinion in that state. What the court has done now is said that actually there was no um such right, and that, uh, in Alito's words, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, and that the Constitution has nothing really to say about abortion restrictions in states. And what that means is that <clears throat> in 16 states right now, mostly democratically led, um, uh, the ability to access abortion is going to look very similar to what it did before. Um, in about 13 states, however, there are trigger laws that went into effect that mean that uh, abortion is either illegal presently or is soon to be uh, fairly illegal soon. So that sets the, the stakes for what's to happen in the immediate future. Um, but we now, I think, will not see an end to the legal warring. Um, there are going to be efforts to suppress the movement of uh, abortion medication, which is often used um, now in the first trimester, um, states that want to be restrictive will, will look at that. And there are also uh, uh, debates about whether or not it is permissible for a state to try to prevent women from leaving states in order to obtain an abortion. So um, we're going to see, I think, continued um, you know, legal warring over this stuff. The Department of Justice has said it's going to get involved, um, but state legislators have proven to be quite crafty even when Roe was uh, in place in terms of making it harder and harder to access abortion. Um, and I don't think that, uh, that, that this has ended the war. It's just started a new sort of battle for it. It's incredible, isn't it? It's quite um, startling. And I, I, I can't help, we have an audience around the world um, and we've got people, we travel to places like um, you know, Iran. There are lots of places we've been to around the world that seem to have a more liberal view about abortion, surprisingly, than the U.S. currently does. Yeah, um, that that's very much right. I mean, within within the Islamic tradition, for example, um, there's this idea that abortion is permissible before the fetus is insold, is the term. So, and within the Jewish faith as well, there's there's some amount of of tolerance for um, abortion. So, you know, there is the sort of sentiment against abortion in America is very much tied to the growth of the evangelical movement, which is itself tied to, um, you know, the sort of nascent um, Christian nationalism within within the Republican Party. Um, all three of those have, have 
have combined in, in this way. But one thing that we'll see is, you know, in, in some cases, so one thing I was looking at was comparing in my home state of Kentucky, um, presently a woman cannot obtain an abortion um, basically under any circumstances other than threat to her life. And that includes rape or incest. Um, and there aren't exceptions for the health of the mother um, short of death, which is um, actually a more severe um, restriction than is presently in the place in Saudi Arabia or Pakistan. Um, in both of those countries, which are not really that permissive to abortion, there's a feeling that if carrying uh, a baby to term would harm the mother's health, um, abortion is still permissible, but that's, that's not the case presently in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in states like Kentucky and Arkansas. And, uh, you know, conversely, I, it's, it's worth mentioning that, you know, much of Western Europe has standards of or, or limits that are well below the thresholds that some of the democratic states have mm -hmm. set up themselves. So Sweden, for example, um, I believe has a threshold of 18 weeks, France, 15, 15 weeks, by the way, is the amount that Mississippi was trying to, um, enact in the, in the case that eventually uh, triggered the end of Roe. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, America looks like as it does in so many other things, um, to quite extremely different, uh, countries, uh, inhabiting what's supposed to be the same Republic. Yeah. Um, it's quite incredible. I'm tempted to go down the route of, um, looking at how the court, um, favors the states over the federal government, um, in this area saying there's no right to it. And obviously then saying that there's a right, um, to bear arms for, for, for example, um, but I think that's possibly a, a debate for another day because we've got, um, I, what I want to try and do is look at how this is going to play out politically. I think the possibly the obvious thing to say is that President Biden is in a pretty awful position. His um, polling is worse than Trump was for part of his presidency, um, which is quite incredible to say. And it doesn't look like if you look in on the sort of, um, horizon in terms of um, the economy, things are not looking good. So are the Democrats hoping that this decision might rally their base a bit? I mean, there seems to be a lot of um, ads going out and uh, evidence that they think so. Um, they certainly think so. Um, and it's it's interesting. Democrats are trying to talk about this as much as they can. And Republicans are trying very hard not to talk about it and to talk about inflation and the economy, um, which I think is an indicator of of what they think the political advantage will be. Um, but in, in, in terms of what this actually changes, um, you know, political scientists have for a long time noticed that the main thing that determines, or you can predict with quite a lot of accuracy, the direction of the midterms based on the president's approval rating and perceptions of the economy. And both of those are really bad for Democrats right now. Um, there have only been two midterm elections, basically in modern American political history, in which the president's party has gained votes. Um, one of those was 1998, after Bill Clinton was unsuccessfully impeached. Um, and, the, and the second was 2002, shortly after 9-11, both fairly um, extraordinary circumstances. So um, it's very likely that Democrats are going to lose uh, significantly uh, based on the present approval ratings and, and, and the like, um, probably lose control of, of the House. Hmm. Um, and, you know, while abortion might decrease the margin of that loss, um, I don't think it'll be enough to reverse that. 
And there are a few reasons for that. Um, one is that uh, in a lot of states, abortion restrictions are uh, popular. They command a majority of, of, of the vote. Um, so it, it's going to be tougher to um, actually enact a sort of electoral change there. There are some states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin that are more swing states where the population is uh, is in favor of, of keeping the old standard of, of row. Um, but the Republicans who are running for office are quite doctrinaire um, in their opposition to abortion. And uh, for example, the governor of Pennsylvania, the senator who's running for Pennsylvania, the governor of Michigan. Um, and in those races, uh, it might make some difference. Now, it won't make a difference in the sense of swinging voters all that much. Um, abortion has become such a polarizing issue that there aren't that many pro-life um, Democrats and there aren't that many pro-choice Republicans. There are a few, but uh, will that be enough to surmount their sort of partisan identity? I, I, I think less so. Um, where this will matter. Just to yeah. pick you on that, I mean, but basically what you're saying is that so many Republicans might disagree um, with what the court has decided, but not enough to swing the vote. Yeah. Um, you know, it, the effect will be marginal. And in states where margins are quite close, you know, marginal things can add up. So they're not, um, they're not trivial. But um, yeah, if you if you consider the political scientists have this theory for for why Americans vote the way they do and how they explain the growth of partisanship and polarization, and they have this theory called negative partisanship, which is this idea that for whatever the sins of my own side, the other guys are so terrible that I cannot fathom voting for them in any way, and so for the for the political psychology of a Republican voter. Most Americans, first of all, are, are moderate on this issue. Most Americans want um, abortion to be present, but they want restrictions on 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 the the time in which a mother can do it that are uh, more restrictive than what Roe was. So, putting that aside, um, but for a Republican who is disquieted by um, the uh, possibility of severe restrictions, um, they will also have to think, you know. They will also have to surmount their their um, association of Democrats with things like socialism and you know critical race theory, these sorts of things, inflation, yeah. these and, sorts and of things. Does that, the same go for gun rights as well? Um, I yeah, I I, I think so. Um, you can do a very similar analysis there, right? You see the people who are most exercised about this issue, as with abortion, have already sorted into their respective parties. If you are an ardent Second Amendment um, enthusiast, um, you probably are already voting Republican, and you know the gun control bill mm. or the Supreme Court decision doesn't really change your your vote. Similarly, if you're a, if you're a Democratic activist that's going out to protest, I mean your vote's already counted for. Mm. Um, you know, mass mobilizations can make a difference, but uh, they're a bit you know they're they're a bit harder than than we might think. Um, mm. And uh, and they'll matter in states where the margins are, are kind of close, right? You're not going to flip, you're not going to flip North Dakota uh, or South Dakota um, on these issues, um, but you might make inroads um, in a state like Pennsylvania. And I think, and I know one thing we want to talk about is is Georgia a bit later, but um, you know, I I think that Stacey Abrams is is actually the underdog um, in in that um, contest, and something like the abortion decision. And gun mm. rights um, might boost your chances a bit. 
Let, let's come. We'll come to that in just a second. So we're talking about Stacey Abrams, who's the um, Democratic contender for uh, the governorship in Georgia. But we'll come to that in just a second. The the, the other decision um, we heard from the Supreme Court was about um, gun rights, saying that um, giving essentially striking down a law by New York State to allow people to, which was. Um, uh, restricting or asking for more licensing and restrictions on people having concealed carry. Um, so that struck down a new, um, uh, a new York law. At the same time, um, uh, Senate and Congress have passed new legislation that will require more um, restrictions, more checks on some people um, acquiring guns. So two two things um, pitted against each other here. I think my, my overall point was that these, these both on abortion and on, on the gun rights issue, but also we've seen the, the, the latest school massacre, um, you think and expect that there might be some sort of direct political consequence from that, the polls, and you're saying it's very limited on both counts. That's the, That was the key point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, unfortunately, there have been quite a lot of mass shootings in America, many of them very horrific. Um, and the sort of political consequences of, the, of those have, have all frequently washed out. Um, yeah. You can point to isolated cases, um, sometimes within state law, where, you know, for example, after the shooting in Parkland, um, Florida enacted, a, a, you know, more checks on, on guns um, for its own state. Mm. You can point to some, some points like that, but I've also seen research that, that suggests that in uh, conservative states, these sort of mass shootings um, trigger looser gun laws um, at the same time. Um, oftentimes we're focused on the places where restrictions are going up, but uh, mm. um, this paper made the point that uh, in some states, actually, they they, they seem to trigger a, a reflexive, yeah. um, you know, reaction. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think that's that's been the case for a few. The, the undertone to all these stories is that the march of the Republican right, um, you know, contract from Newt Gingrich to to Trump um, and becoming more and more hardline. And um, you you mentioned Georgia. And the thing that I picked up on on that race there, it seemed to me that on both sides, both Republicans and the Democrats are actually competing for the center ground there, which seemed to be going against the sort of the national um, sort of narrative, if you like. Am, am I right in thinking that? And can you talk a bit more about those the, some of the races you we were speaking about? Um, Stacey Abrams is certainly running as a moderate Democrat. Um, she's not running like the progressive icon that she's sort of become. Um, the things that she... Just remind us for who, who Stacey Abrams is. Well, she was a pivotal person in, in the 20, 2020 um, election, um, seemed to have corralled the black American vote in Georgia and got Biden across the line. Yeah. Um, so Stacey Abrams ran for governor and of Georgia in 2018, um, and she came very close to winning. She very narrowly lost to Brian Kemp. Um, and the way that she um, achieved that result was by um, an aggressive voter turnout campaign that had begun um, many years before when she was Speaker of the, of the Georgia um, House of Representatives. Um, and the theory was that by turning out um, African-American Hispanic voters that uh, that she would turn Georgia blue. Um, she didn't succeed in 2018, and she claimed that Brian Kemp, who was then the Secretary of State in charge of the elections, had uh, engaged in voter suppression, and that that was why she lost. Um, and because of that, she became um, quite popular nationally. Um, in 2020, Georgia did turn 
blue, both for um, Biden and the Electoral College, but also it sent two Democratic senators to Congress, um, thereby giving Democrats a 50-50 majority and enabling them to pass legislation um, that they probably would not have. Um, she's r- running again to be governor um, in 2022, again against Brian Kemp, um, who is now, um, previously he ran as a, as a really, really um, solid Republican, but he's now a bit of a of a persona non grata among the the Trumpier factions because he did not um, help Trump steal the election, which is what he wanted him to do in Georgia. Um, so, given that backdrop um, and given Abrams's sort of national profile, the fact that she's you know on Star Trek and SNL and and everything else, you might think that she's running a, a sort of um, AOC style, you know, Medicare for all kind of, uh, campaign, but she's, she's very much not, I mean, her signature issue, it seems is Medicaid expansion, um, which is, you know, status intervention, but it's one that's fairly popular. Um, and she just released a plan last week, um, arguing that, uh, uh, the salaries of police should be increased. So she's very much distancing herself from defund the police types. Hmm. I, I think Kemp will tack a bit to the center, but his nature is not. Is, is, let, let, is just, uh, just stop you there. I mean, because the point is uh, you expect that uh, Trump has been going around giving endorsements you know, across the states. And in, in, in Georgia, both his candidates, if you were talking about the for two of his candidates, one for governor, we're talking about Kemp, um, and then Rassenberger as, as um, state secretary, um, were not his thing. He was against them, and they both got in. Yeah. Um, and I, I went and, and, and covered that and got to speak to Raffensperger about his campaign. Like the nominations, the Republican candidate. Yeah, yeah the, the primary. They both survived the primary. primary challenge. So, so did the uh, the attorney general, who was a sort of minor, minor figure. But basically, um, you know, Trump has actually, I, I think last I checked, his, his uh, track record for endorsements in the primaries this cycle has been about 70 three percent or something um, fairly high and if you if you look at the way that um, candidates are positioning themselves in in important primaries like the Ohio Senate race or the Pennsylvania Senate race or the Arizona Senate race they are all acting like Trump is the kingmaker um, and they are all trying to position themselves in such a way that that Trump might endorse them so it matters to them but I think what happened in Georgia was that Trump's personal animus for uh, Kemp and Brad Raffensperger um, meant that he basically tried to stir up um, candidates, um, and he found people who were, I think, less convincing. And Trump has actually been fairly disciplined in picking people he thinks will win. Um, so I think he knows that you know people are going to examine how well his candidates do as a sign of how much control of the party he has. But, um, you know, in, in Georgia, he picked, he picked, uh, David Perdue, who was the Senator who lost, um, and Perdue had to undergo this reinvention from, uh, you know, kind of conservative run of the mill businessman into ultra MAGA, um, Kemp didn't help, uh, the president, uh, Democrats stole the election, uh, backwards looking 2020, um, campaign and the candidate he stirred up against, uh, Raffensperger, a representative named Jody Heiss was in a s- similar, similar vein, who also 
I, I, th- I think Heiss had a better chance of winning, but uh, from what I can gather, his his campaign was quite lackluster. Um, and Raffensperger spent quite a lot of time, about a year, traveling Georgia and, and, and trying to get back into their good graces. But even if you look at their, uh, if you look at both men's actual campaigns, both men are not emphasizing the fact that um, Donald Trump tried to steal the Georgia election and that they held firm and and held to their oath of office over the party. Um, that's that's a side point. That's not one that they want to dwell very much on. Mm-hmm. If you ask them about it, they'll talk about it and they'll defend their actions. But uh, but they know that becoming a sort of Liz Cheney like figure, um, being being a sort of Saint Sebastian with the arrows slung at you is not is not going to get them uh elected so they don't emphasize it um and that itself i think is an indication of where the direction of the party is um one thing i don't know if 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 any of you watched the january 6th uh committee hearings that were happening last week they got completely overshadowed by the abortion decision for obvious reasons but one of the people who testified quite powerfully was um in addition to raffensperger um speaker of the arizona house of representatives a republican named rusty bowers who talk quite eloquently about how his faith and his oath of office meant that he um, had no choice but to resist the um, significant pressure that people like Rudy Giuliani were placing on him to decertify the Arizona election results. Um, and, you know, he was he was quite impactful. But in an interview that he gave right before the testimony, he said that, uh, nonetheless, if Trump were the nominee in 2024, I would still vote for him, um, which is, I think, t- it goes back to illustrate um, the point I was making about negative partisanship, the idea that however, however anti-democratic um, and, and personally hostile I've known this man to be, I mean, Bowers talks a bit about the fact that Stop the Steel protesters um, mm. uh, were outside of his house um, around the time that his, his daughter was was dying. And some, some of the last things she heard were people calling him a pedophile and these sorts of horrible, horrible things. Um, nonetheless, if he's going to vote for him, um, because the other party is so awful, I think that's a that's a grim microcosm for uh, what's wrong with the with American politics. Is that to say that those hearings, the January sixth hearings, really aren't going to have much impact on the electorate either? Um, you know, What's, what what do you think significant that has come out of them? I mean, you've talked about what that's one example, and you're talking about him voting for Trump still, but are there any other? Things that are conclusions you think that it's that, that have come out of it. Yeah, I feel I feel like a slightly bad journalist because I um, uh, journalists are supposed to say that everything matters and it might be existential, but I, I feel like I've been saying, um, you know, it's better to expect that effects are minimal. But um, you know, I I think that the January sixth hearings have gone better than um, than, than I thought in terms of their impact. Um, and in terms of their, their structure, one thing that was interesting was uh, I was reading a New York Times piece about the fact that um, uh, they actually uh, are receiving assistance from a, a television executive producer in terms of laying out um, their sort of episodes and um, and graphics and these sorts of things. The, and the I, hearings are the people who are yeah, the hearings. Yeah, 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 and and that that makes sense. Um, you know, my my feeling previously was that these wouldn't have very much of an impact. Um, Partially because we've seen these sorts of of attempts before. We've seen with both impeachments this idea that Democrats have that if they just had an organized, um, you know, forensic accounting of Donald Trump's actions, uh, Republicans would be shamed into 
um, realizing that this man was not fit for the for the presidency. Um, and in, in, in both those cases, the wishful thinking, I think, um, very quickly hit reality. So, if, you know, third time I, I thought would, would not be the charm. Um, we have largely covered terrain that most people who were, you know, around for January 6th will be familiar with. We, we add, we've gotten added color and texture. We, we see the extent of the pressure campaign that was, that was launched. We see, um, the, you know, the extent of, of, of the, you know, pressure that was put on vice president Pence, um, in particular, um, the, the fact that the department of justice was nearly, um, in the hands of a, of a, of a man who was not at all competent, but whose only, um, criteria was being a a sort of complete Trump toady. Um, all, all these things we, we see, and they're sort of newly, newly fascinating. Um, but, uh, I, I I wonder what the the effect will be on on the Republican electorate. Seventy percent of them still say that Joe Biden stole the election. That's been consistent ever since election day. Mm. Um, so I'm you know if, if anything can break through, um, I think it might be something like this. But um, you know the the bind between Trump and, and the party has been so tight that uh, um, I'm I'm you know it's probably a safer bet to say that, that, uh, that it won't change. Yeah. I, I'm, I think your colleagues have said that uh, things are bad now for Biden. They're only going to get worse. Um, yeah. you know, from COVID you know, now to inflation and, uh, you know, and a, 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 a economic slowdown, if not recession expected sooner or later. Um, a, a Republican hold, um, held house might try and impeach him, you know, what, um, why not? And they've got the power to do so, and he's also he's visibly started to slow down. Um, you know, they say that he's got a reasonable grip on on um, on policy, but still looks pretty slow in 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 public. Um, so that that well, my first question is, I mean, how do you assess his White House? His the, the how how are they how are they done so far? What, what's your assessment of them? Um, well, they they've done much less than they set out to do. Um, they had these grand ambitions for how they would remake America, um, that Biden would be a new deal sort of president with Rooseveltian sort of accomplishments to his name. Um, and in part because of how high they've set expectations, um, they've, I, I think failed relative to them. That doesn't mean that things haven't happened, but, uh, you know, we certainly don't have anything like the new deal like, you know, any of the sort of great, great society programs that Johnson wanted to, to implement. What we have legis- what we have legislatively is, um, you know, in the, the first sort of big one was the American Rescue Plan, which was this $1.9 trillion stimulus plan that went into effect shortly after Biden became president. And, um, um, you know, that was a lot of money. Um, it's been spent. It probably heightened inflation to some degree. Um, and it did not create a permanent structure that altered America. Um, a lot of it was the sugar rush of stimulus checks or state aid or these sorts of things, money that, um, you know, kind of goes in a, into salaries and, and disappears. But the, nothing like Obamacare. Um, there haven't been, uh, and, and, and then everything else got wrapped up into Build Back Better, which was going to be this 
you know, this climate change spending bill with safety net um, spending. Um, it was going to increase taxes on on companies and, and the wealthy. Um, and because uh, the Biden administration put all of its eggs in one basket effectively, um, when that collapsed and it hasn't really restarted yet, um, it looked as though the administration has 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 failed. Um, you know, there there's some exceptions, obviously. Um, they pass an infrastructure bill, which is actually fairly large. Um, they pass this gun control bill. Um, they are getting close to a deal on um, a, a U.S.-China uh, uh, in, uh, competition bill. Um, you know, these things are are, are reasonably good accomplishments for uh, for a president. But because they've been messaging essentially to say Republicans need to pass Build Back Better, Democrats need to pass it. That's the only thing that will fix everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that it's failed, I think, has 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 shown their accomplishments in actually a harsher light than they might have intended. Okay. Um, looking ahead now to 2024, I mean, the uh, we've just been traveling around Europe. We've been um, had contact with people in, in France involved with uh, foreign affairs there. We've been through the Baltics, been in Finland. And you know, the, the, the big concern there is if there's another Trump presidency and what that does for sort of transatlantic relations and really the strength of democracy in the world, that's an, an obvious worry. So um, you've got to look at the Democrats and also the Republicans as what they might provide as an alternative. And within the Democratic camp, uh, it's a problem, isn't it? Um, uh, Biden, if Biden is uh, seen as running again, he's clearly perceived as being too old. And then his vice is also not seen as terribly strong. Can you just tell me about why is Kamala Harris not seen as a good prospect within the Democratic Party? Well, um, Democrats have seen this movie before of an underwhelming candidate um, basically achieving the nomination by coronation effectively mm. um, with Hillary Clinton. Um, and they saw the the consequences of that, which was Trump winning and, you know, the... Um, American sort of Trumpian nightmare continuing from there. So how, and, how do you think that plays out then? If for the nomination? Yeah. Um, look, but, it's, what, what's the competition? I guess, uh, first of all, you've got to persuade the, the president that he's not running, then the vice president that possibly she, she should put in a bid but compete with others, and then who comes in? So assuming you get through those two hurdles, which I'm not sure that you necessarily will, um, you know, the bench has has a couple of other um, old timers. Um, you know, Bernie's still around. Um, uh, Elizabeth Warren is slightly younger um, and probably might have one more campaign run with, within her. Um, but if you look towards the sort of next generation of, of, of Democrats who could run, um, you know, I, I think that there are certainly people like Pete Buttigieg who are clearly ambitious people who, who will want to run. Um, there are folks like uh, Ro Khanna, who is a um, progressive uh, representative um, in the House, who are contemplating this stuff. I mean, you know, you could even see a run from someone like um, AOC. But uh, uh, you know, if you think about when did we know about Pete Buttigieg? Um, when did we know about someone named Barack Obama? Um, these kinds of people kind of leap onto the public imagination um, in the in the two or so years before. Yeah. Um, in election. So, uh, you know, there's certainly those people who who would run. Cory Booker will probably run again um, if he can. But uh, I think there will also be uh, one or two folks who we haven't heard of 
um, who will suddenly, I mean, you know, there's a, there's going to be an Andrew Yang of some kind. Um, who, we, we run a, um, Iowa caucuses tour, which is, mm-hmm. um, always, I mean, for your access to candidates and seeing the race on, on both sides is actually amazing instead of, um, you know, getting, being, being in the room with those candidates. Let, let's get some questions in please people. If you can put your questions in the Q and a box, um, we can put them to Idris. So get get tapping away. There's tons to ask about, and you normally don't hold back, so don't hold back now. Um, what's Mike Pence doing? Uh, is that is that a question from you or from? Yeah, uh, no, for you. That's a question for you. Oh, okay. Uh, he's he's thinking about running. I think uh, he certainly is acting like it. Uh, I think he has some political action committee or, or some, you know, one, one of these, um, political jobs that people do in holding while they wait to run, um, Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump's secretary of state also has one of these outfits where they tour the country, go to swing states, make endorsements, make speeches, try to stay in the public eye. Um, so I, I, I think he's, he's trying to see whether or not there's a, an avenue for him. Um, uh, and, you know, I think that if Donald Trump were to want to run again, um, it would be very hard for anyone to to make space. I, I, I think certainly true for Pence. Um, I think there's been a recent amount of optimism that Ron DeSantis could dis- deplay, uh, displace Donald Trump um, in a Republican nomination. But uh, I'm, I'm a bit more skeptical of that actually happening at this moment. Right. It's, it's uh, an amazing prospect. Um, we've got um, some questions coming in. Um, I'm hoping that we can get bring Richard Murphy um, online. He's got a question there. Can we bring Richard up? Yeah, there we go. Richard, far away. Hi. Yeah, I, I think this is the question about um, democratic activists rather than voters um, and how much they might be motivated. And for, for Nicholas, I'd thrown in um, I mean, I'm a Lib Democrat um, activist in the UK. Five of us were campaigning um, down at the by-election that we've just had where Boris Johnson was defeated, effectively. Um, and we had all were motivated by Brexit to join and become activists, but have now broadened that out to actually just campaign against the government. So what? what's the question on... on- so what, will it will it motivate activists? Because in the end, you know, a lot will depend on who just physically knocking on doors, living leaflets, collecting money. That's I'm going to push back at you. I'm going to push back at you, Richard. I'm I'm, I'm I think um, Brit- Britons are politically largely apathetic, and, and um, okay, and and Brexit got some people engaged, but I think the American Americans have been had plenty of activists left and right for a very long period of time. I, Idris, do you agree or disagree? Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, you could argue that, um, perhaps, uh, active political activists in America are, are slightly too active. Um, and that, that is, uh, part of the, part of the problem, but no, I, I, I don't think that, um, there's ever any shortage of, of volunteers for these sorts of campaigns, um, for presidential campaigns, certainly, um, even congressional campaigns, these sorts of things. Um, there's an incredible amount of money that is spent um, on on elections. I mean, I think the last one was 10 billion, 11 billion. Um, that's people knocking on doors, but it's also this deluge of advertising um, that you see on on TV and on on the internet. Which uh, you know, if you've been in America for an election year, you really know it. Um, 
and it, it's quite distinctive from from Europe in that way. So I I, I think that there won't be a sort of dearth of, of activism. Um, what will matter is whether or not that actually can can lead into into votes. Um, and um, you know, while you know, America is interesting because there's a, a significant number of people who um, people who read the news, people who can name probably all nine Supreme Court justices off the top of their head. Um, and the vast majority of Americans um, can't. Um, and in midterms, it's it's tough to actually drive turnout. Um, so while there are quite a lot of activists uh, within America, um, giving people a motivational message that will actually drive them to the polls is, is a separate thing. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I'd point that out. Right. There's, okay. It's just um, not, as you were saying, is there's no, there isn't the same scope as there is in the UK to actually boost the physical activism side. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I don't think that it's the, that that's the determinant of, uh, of, of election results broadly, because there, there are just so many people you have to convince to, to vote and the, and the, and the things that their vote turns on, turn on, um, uh, are are very different from what uh, for what motivates people to to go out and volunteer. But it would seem to me that the die is substantially cast in the states in the way that it isn't here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Let, let's um, turn to Simon Jackson, um, and it could be Annie McMahon. I I can't tell with the beard. Very hard to tell. Yeah. Um, I remember as a child learning that the judiciary is above politics and exists in part to protect the people from the excesses of politicians. To what extent does the American public still believe this to be the case? Because they do seem to act increasingly like an unelected chamber. Can I add one more question to that? Um, th obviously, there's been a trajectory where the Supreme Court's got more and more I'm talking about the Supreme Court, it's got more and more political. And and there must be a lot written about that. And I'm actually interested if there's any particular book or reading that one could could look to as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think that the Supreme Court has gone through cycles of of this sort of sentiment. Um and you know when when these decisions, the ones that we're talking about, particularly for Roe, Roe was seen as quite a um an activist um, decision when it was made in, in the 1970s to basically say that there was a, a fundamental right to abortion within the constitution that didn't exist before. Um, so I, I think to some extent this, uh, and, and previously the, uh, the, the court that FDR was dealing with was seen as, as quite conservative and too conservative. Um, so I, I think that there are there are cycles to to the sentiment, and and what always happens is people who don't like a decision um, start to question the legitimacy of the court. People who do like the decision say the court is fulfilling its actual purpose. You saw that with uh, in 2010 when uh, when the court decided that uh, Obamacare was constitutional. You saw conservatives say kind of the similar thing to what liberals are saying today. Um, but stepping back. Uh, America does have quite a strange constitutional order. Um, Britain does have a Supreme Court. It's relatively new, but I imagine that none of you can name anyone who's on it, um, or maybe you can, um, I, you know, maybe the Chief Justice or, or something. But in America, um, uh, these justices have uh, this sort of primacy that doesn't uh, doesn't exist in, in 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 other countries, and I think that that's partially due to the weirdness of 
of the uh, constitutional law system that they've set up for themselves, which is essentially that uh, um, that you know the, the Constitution is studied and plumbed for its hidden meanings, and those and those hidden meanings change over time. Um, to my mind, I can't think of any other country that that, that does it in this way. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I personally think that, uh, you know, everyone says that they want judicial restraint. Um, but I think that once they're, they're, um, on the cusp of actually achieving what they, what they like, then, then that goes out the window. Um, I'm not sure how you square that circle. Um, people have suggested some things like term limits and, and such, and, and short of, um, of, uh, of actually packing the court, but, uh, I'm worried about, the overall legitimacy of the court, because it is one of the few institutions that I think actually work relatively well. And, and by that, I mean, when you examine what Trump tried to do, um, in terms of overturning the election, um, Republicans in Congress were more than willing to let him do that. Republican attorneys general were more than willing to let him do that. But every time he tried to bring his claims before the courts, because there's still a norm of decency and adherence to fact and law, um, 60 out of 61, courts, including some with Trump appointees said, you know, there's no basis here and, and leave and had those, had those claims, have had any of them really gone to Supreme court? I, I really have no doubt that the court would have, would have turned him away. Um, but as, as these sort of partisan wars continue, I think that, you know, they'll, they'll drag down the legitimacy of the court itself, um, as well. Yeah, sure. That's pretty shocking. Um, the Democrats must be fierce. They, they sort of worshipped her as a heroine at the time, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and her, her um, sort of, you know, really didn't step down until she died, really. I mean, well, she didn't. Um, and and that, that she has to blame has to lie with her to some degree um, in terms of the Democratic camp. Yeah, there there is, um, you know, it, it's strange to me also that uh, she, she became this, it, there's this neighborhood in, in Washington called Adams Morgan, and you'll see uh, posters of of her on the street lamps in Andy Warhol colors, uh, which is just a slightly strange thing if you come to think about it. Uh, you know, someone who's who's interpreting the law, who's who's a sort of icon in in, in this way. Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like the sign of the healthiest uh, democracy. But uh, anyway, okay, we're going to rattle through these questions. Um, more and more coming through. Um, uh, let's take Hillary Matthews. Go ahead, go ahead, Harry. You there? Um, yeah. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, just a comment about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Bader Ginsburg. I read in the New York Times a few months ago that she herself made a speech um, some time ago, saying that she didn't think that the Roe v. Wade decision was watertight, and she was troubled that it might be upset at some point. I think she felt that it was open to being challenged as it has been. Um, but three very quick questions for you. One is, do you know if Mike Pence is going to testify at the January 6th hearings? Um, and secondly, is the US ready for Pete Buttigieg, a gay gay an openly gay person to be president? Or in the case of Kamala Harris, a mixed race woman, surely given the... Um, the climate now, neither one has much of a chance. Let's deal with those last questions first. Sure. <clears throat> um, I, I I think a lot of the country um, 
would be okay with a, a, a gay president and a, and a black female president. But I think that the particular nature of the uh, electoral college makes it harder. I mean, I, I could see Pete Buttigieg winning the popular vote potentially. I, I think it's a little bit harder for Kamala to do that because, but that's just, I, I think because of her inadequacies as a, as a candidate, but in, in the places that you do need to win, um, state by state, um, you know, you need to win a state like perhaps Wisconsin or, or Pennsylvania or Michigan. And in, in, in those states, you can, you can imagine that those identity considerations I think would, would, would weigh negatively against them. And those are states that are decided by fairly tight margins anyway. Um, and so for that reason, I think, uh, I, I think it might be uphill. I don't think it's impossible. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think this country has made pretty good strides, uh, particularly on acceptance of, 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 of gay people. Um, and then on your, on your first Mike Pence testifying. Yeah. So I, I don't have any special knowledge as far as I know, he's, he's not planning to, to testify. I know that they, um, they asked, uh, one of the committee members who declined to comment. And I think that some people are, are getting excited, but my, my sense is that he, my guess would be that, that he won't. Uh, okay, Marcy Ryan, next, please. Yes, hi. I'm in Connecticut, and your discussion so far has been at the federal level. And we have in this midterm election some very significant Secretary of State elections that could lead to tremendously increased voter suppression and even manipulation of voting results. So would you talk to that as well, please? Um, sure. Uh, one thing that I've been looking at quite a lot has been this, the Secretary of State races. Um, so I, I'm particularly concerned about the phenomenon of uh, very hardcore Trump-supporting candidates um, essentially trying to be the chief elections officers in states who will be responsible for certifying the 2024 presidential election. So um, the the man that Brad Raffensperger was running against, Jody Heiss, was one such person. He was at the Capitol on, on January 6th, um, as was Mark Fincham, who is this uh, candidate who's running to be the uh, Arizona Secretary of State, uh, and another person who is of similar ilk, um, uh, has won the nomination to be Michigan's Secretary of State. Um, I, I think Colorado also has nominated someone like this. Um, I, I find that to be incredibly uh, concerning. Um, and and I'm, I'm less concerned about, um, I, well, I, I should say I'm more concerned about the direct sort of electoral subversion and the chance that one of these people will not certify an election loss for Republicans, basically point blank, than I am about um, than, than I am about the voter suppression. I think I think Democrats have been actually focused on on the wrong um, issue for the for, for the present times, um, and uh, you know if if you were to look at uh, at at one of these secretaries of state and, and the position that they'd be in, I mean you can imagine what would happen if if Raffensperger had said I'm not going to certify, 
or um, the Arizona result was not certified, the kind of constitutional crisis that this would trigger. We had a preview of this, I think, in New Mexico last week, where uh, one of the counties, um, uh, their, their commissioner basically refused to certify, uh, saying that the voting machines had been tampered with and a judge had to force them to do so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm worried that 2020 will look a bit like a dry run in comparison to what we might see in 2024, particularly if these people get elected, as they may well do, because it's it's going to be a grim uh, year for Democrats uh, in the midterms at large. Idris, I, I have a um, a few years back, I would sort of rebut people when people would say, you know, Democrats, um, normally on the left, would say, you know, American democracy in crisis, you know, we've got fascism here. And I mean, I just dismiss it out of hand. But um, as as they, with the with uh, January the sixth, the Trumps later um, days in the presidency, um, and what's happening now, one has to conform to that view. American democracy does seem to be in crisis, um, and it sets very bad precedents for the rest of the world. I, lo- I look at the UK here; we're introducing uh, laws that may make it more difficult for some people to register to vote. We've got a new Bill of Rights that makes it more difficult to demonstrate, for example, and these are among you know, various pieces of legislation that are, are, are concerning. Uh, can you give us a summary of, of um, American ills and then possibly give us reasons to be hopeful? Um, sure. One, one list might be longer than the, than the other. Um, so as far as the ills, I think there's, you know, one, one thing I didn't really appreciate until 2020 was how much, um, how much the American system relied on norms of decency and shame. Yeah, I realized it sounded a bit like my, my father, but you know, when Ronald Reagan gave his inaugural address and said, you know, a, a remarkable thing is happening here, I'm paraphrasing, but the peaceful transfer of power is something that has happened um, for roughly 200 years. Um, and it's so commonplace in America that we never remark upon it. Well, now it is remarkable. Now we 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 do have reason to to worry about it. Um, you know, in in a way that's been that's been broken. And 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 the reason that the peaceful transfer to power happened was not really because you know the Electoral Count Act was uh, watertight. It wasn't because um, you know uh, uh, officials were um, continuously being videotaped as they counted votes. It was because there was communal political trust and there was a norm that if you lost the election fair and square you you said so um and that accounted for a lot of it and what we've seen now is that once you get rid of that um you know the actual guardrails against Mm. someone trying to stay in office are quite thin it's a few people it's people like the secretary of state in georgia it's people like those attorneys in the department of justice who um who said it's that referred to here as the decent chap theory. In other words, you know, of course we'll play by the system and we'll be honorable men. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and women, but, um, uh, um, I, you know, what we see now is basically a, a decline, um, a sort of a huge sort of shock to that. And, and this idea, if you told me that more than half of Republican representatives in Congress would say, yeah, Trump should stay in office. I, 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 you know, a few months before the election, I, I would have thought you were crazy. Um, that's, I think, the biggest, one of the biggest, you know, erosions. It, 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 it's a sort of more profound um, loss, um, a more profound hindrance than, 
you know, the mechanistic things that we can talk about, like yeah. the presence of the filibuster um, or a sort of overly activist Supreme Court. Like I, 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 like I said earlier, I think the Supreme Court is still one of the few institutions in which you will find Republicans who say, if my guy loses, um, he shouldn't stay in office. Um, that that's, that's, that's somewhat of a, of a controversial opinion, um, <laughs> within the Republican party. Um, you know, and that's, that's a huge, huge problem. Um, yeah. um, okay. I know you've got limited time and, um, so um, we've got, we've got two more questions and then, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, yep. so we have got, sorry, um, Philip Godfrey. Yeah. You, your hand up, Philip. Go ahead, Philip. Uh, can you hear me, Nick? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to sound a, uh, an optimistic note for once, which is unlike me, but uh, maybe in handing down uh, the issue of Roe uh, and abortion to the to the states uh, and letting, if you like, democracy play its part individually, state by state, uh, that's going to be a threat to the less progressive caucus because perhaps the voters will vote um, accordingly, and will will basically uh, cause problems for the evangelical Christian right wing, uh, you know, uh, minority that has mm. basically placed. But I think Philip, what Jesus has been saying is that it doesn't that issue, while it grabs the headlines, doesn't matter enough to um, the real fare that makes voters vote, which is, I suppose, essentially money in your pocket and the fact you back yeah. your side, right or wrong. Yeah, so I, I take I do take that point, but I still think it's going to be an interesting, if if want a better expression, experiment to see whether, given that the vast majority of Americans actually believe in some form of uh, abortion rights, uh, whether or not that will play out politically. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I I think that in, in a lot of these states, even even the conservative ones, the abortion um, rules that have been put in place, you know, complete bans, bans. Um, for six weeks, which are effectively complete bans um, with limited exemptions, that is to that is quite to the far right end of of, of Americans' perspectives. So a, a very small minority of Americans believe basically that abortion should be banned in in all cases. Now, I do I think that do I think that that by itself is going to be enough to swing um, what looks like a pretty dismal year for Democrats? No, but. Um, Unpopular policies tend to tend to provoke um, backlashes, and I think that 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 can take uh, that can take a few years to to get through. I mean, witness Roe itself, right? That was the culmination of effectively a forty year campaign to to overturn uh, something that the committed group of people found unpopular. Um, so I I expect that there will be moderation in part because these policies have all been designed in a hypothetical vacuum. Uh, these were all designed basically when Roe goes, this is what we will have. Um, and they haven't embraced the the, the tough realities of, of life, which are that, you know, we're going to shortly get um, horror stories of, of, of young women, you know, some of whom have been raped, being made to carry their babies to term. And, and that will, I, I think, change public opinion. And that I think will will have an effect on uh, on, on, on the contours of, of these policies. But I, I think it, I think it might be more of a long-term effect than uh, than the short-term one that that some people might be anticipating. Okay, there we're going to wrap it up, everyone. Um, I know Jesus is short on time, so um, I'm, my thanks to him. It's been, I mean, your your analyses is is brilliant, and you've got this ability to 
both provide us with the detail, but also give us a very good overview. I'm very grateful for your time, Idris. Okay, great. Well, I hope it was helpful. Thank you so much.